Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am busy right now. I'm, I've walked up to a blackboard, and I'm writing on the blackboard 100 times. Technology is my friend. Technology is my friend. We've got Dr. Mark Muska online, but we're still trying to figure out if we're going to have a connection with him. Mark, are you there? There's a big blank, so that's probably a no. Well, anyway, I'm, I still have 97 more times to write technology is my friend. That should... Uh, Give us some time to try to get Mark on the line. We're going to enjoy Ask the Professor once we get him on. So if you have a question about something that you read in the Bible, something that you've been wondering about for a while, now would be a wonderful time to send the question over. Our text line is uh, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'd love your questions. Any question you'd like to have uh, for Dr. Mark Muska would be great. And also, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and pastors, you know, have an incredibly hard job, and we are trying to encourage them, and you can do so by sending a note of encouragement and a coffee gift card to your pastor for free today. All you have to do is sign up at myfaithradio.com, and at the meeting this morning, I've heard there's already a lot of people doing that, so that's kind of fun. So it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and you can sign up at MyFaithRadio.com. I think we have Mark now. Mark, are you there? I am. Are you there, Bill? I am absolutely here. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. No, you're here, and I'm there. That's <laughs> that's true. You are in South Dakota right now, so thank you for doing the show. This is our first time you've done it remotely. Yeah. So really glad to have you uh, have you with us today, so thank you. Yeah, I miss seeing your smiling face and Rosie especially and that but uh, you could do what you do. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. So, I've already let people know it's it's uh the text line is open and you can send questions over for Dr. Mark Muska 877-933-2484. Um Rosie had a question out of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 about the bit the root of bitterness. Ooh. What do we learn about that? What, what do we know about the root of bitterness? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, toward the end of the uh, book of Hebrews, where the author has been talking about the superiority of Christianity over the old covenant Judaism in the first uh, 11 chapters or so. And uh, now uh, he's talking about some of the applications for living now. And in chapter 12, he's talking about especially about uh, running the race with endurance, very famous at the beginning. And then he's got just a general uh, t- teaching here. Uh, he teaches especially about discipline and God's discipline for us and how we should accept it because it ca- helps us to become uh, mature and like Christ. And then in verse 12 is where it starts, Bill. And I'm just reading it here where uh, the writer says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, 
and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And then uh, was it verse 15 that you talked about? Um, Yes, 15. Yeah, 14 he says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many are defiled. And so uh, that, very interesting, the the root of bitterness, it's a social thing here apparently, where there would be divisions and conflict within the body, within the body of believers. And uh, uh, Paul, uh, the, the writer here is saying, uh, stay away from that. And root has the, the notion to it that it's something entrenched. It's not just an action where I say, well, Bill, you know, I don't like your shirt today. Okay, that I probably shouldn't say that, but that's not really a root. But it's something that gets deep-seated mm-hmm. and chronic. I think most people, me included, know exactly what that means, that there's a temptation to let things deepen and the bitterness strengthen rather than letting it go. I mean, maybe in our culture, one of the classic examples of this was the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, where <laughs> mm-hmm. they were shooting at each other and trying to kill each other, and they couldn't even remember why anymore <laughs> that all of this had started. It had been going on for so many years, but they really hated each other, and there was this bitterness there. Uh, bitterness is almost the the opposite of forgiveness and and compassion. Uh, bitterness carries with it resentment and anger and uh, hard-heartedness. And so uh, it is a very real danger to the individual follower of Christ and to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of thing gets dug in and you get factions and it it ne- leads to very little good and a whole lot of not good. So it's quite a warning that he offers. That we, it is. Yeah, that we hear in Hebrews. It's short but sweet. Yeah, you know? I mean, this is it's one where I wonder if when they read this, they went, hold it. We got to stop here for a few minutes and talk about this, mm-hmm. especially with that one over there in the corner who's grinding his teeth at me. You know, I mean, right. that might be an indicator here that we got to talk. <laughs> so, I like that. All right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I love this passage. It's verse, verses 3 uh, and 4. Yep. And it's, for, uh, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance yep. that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why does he say according to the scriptures twice in two verses? Uh, it's a couple different scriptures. So uh, that he's, uh, uh, what Paul is doing here, I think there's a lot of uh, scholars that would agree with me here that uh, you have to go to Old Testament uh, uh, poetry. And uh, some of, of our listeners know that uh, in, in Hebrew poetry, it wasn't so much that they rhymed things, but they said things in parallel, parallel expressions. Mm, interesting. And it appears as though he's doing this now because he introduces this in the first couple verses by saying, this is the gospel that I delivered to you, that you received, by which you're saved. This is the gospel. And then in verse 3, he says, he starts it and he says, as a first importance, Christ died for our sins. And then he appeals to Scripture. He says, that's right there in the Old Testament. And I, you, know, you can figure this one out, Bill. One of the most famous pl- passages that teaches this, that Christ died for our sins, is uh, Isaiah 53. 
the 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 sheep that was killed for our transgressions. And so he appeals to Scripture, and then he offers proof that Christ died that they buried him. You mm-hmm. know, it sounds like a bad Steve Martin movie that you don't <laughs> bury live guys. You know, you bury dead guys. Mm-hmm. So how do we know he died? Well, they buried him. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of proof that he really did die yeah. for our sins. But then the parallel comes. He makes his second statement, he was raised. The first one was he died for our sins, and now he makes a second statement, he was raised on the third day, and then parallel according to the scriptures. And that's a little more tricky. The best passage to look at for this is in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10. Uh, Peter quotes this uh, in the book of Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost when he's talking about Christ being raised from the dead. And he quotes from Psalm 16 where it says that God would not allow his Holy One to see decay. And Peter says, uh, this isn't talking about David, because we all know David died. We have his tomb here, and he did decay, but he's speaking of the resurrection of the Christ. So that is that is something the Scripture foretold, that the Christ would raise. And then on the third day, according to Scripture, and then the parallel again here, and then he appeared, and he lists a whole bunch of people. Uh, Cephas, the mm-hmm. Twelve, Five Hundred, James, and that lastly, he appealed to me, uh, appeared to me too, Paul. And so he makes a statement of what the gospel is. He appeals to Scripture, according to Scripture, mm-hmm. and then he offers some proof. He appeared to all these guys. How do we know he was raised from the dead? Lots of people have seen him. And the notion here is, at the time Paul writes this, uh, you can look these people up in the book. They're still alive. You can talk to them. They've seen the resurrected Christ. So he makes a statement about the gospel. He appeals to the scriptural support for it, and he gives evidence. He died. How do we know it? We buried, Well, they buried him. He was raised from the dead. How do we know it? Lots of people have seen him, including me, Paul hmm. is saying. So... It's, it's really an ornate way to describe the core of the gospel. I think it's the most direct statement of what the gospel is in the New Testament, that if you put those two first statements together, what is the gospel at its core? Mm-hmm. Christ, Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. Oh, so good. Thank you. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, ask the professor. Send it over. The text line is open, 877 Mark, here's a question. What is the difference between a prayer and a blessing? Oh, hmm. I don't know if I've heard that one before. That's a good one. I would say that a blessing is a subset of a prayer. A prayer is just a fancy word we'd use for communicating with God. And there's all different kinds of ways that we communicate with God. We confess sin. We worship him. We make requests. And... In this case, we bless him and we bless others. And so to bless someone is to wish for them the best. If I bless you, Bill, I'm saying, Bill, I just, I wish to God for the best for mm-hmm. you in your life. Thank you, and Mark. I, I, I issue a blessing to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we bless people when events take place, like when they're baptized with water or with some churches when they're confirmed or when they get married. It's appropriate to have very good and well wishes for that person and to ascribe that, to connect it with God, to appeal to God that he would be the one that would bring this good to these people's lives. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let me take a break. We've got lots of time for your question. If you have it and can text it over, I will ask Dr. Mark Muska, who's my guest. This segment is called Ask the Professor. So if you've got a tough question you've been wrestling with or maybe you haven't been able to get an answer, a satisfactory answer, we'll do our very best to help. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. My friend, Dr. Mark Muska, is my guest this hour. We call this segment Ask the Professor, and you can send your questions over to 877-933-2484. Mark, here's an interesting question, and I'll read, I'll read it just the way it came in. Okay. My husband has asked this question of several pastors, and nobody can come up with an answer, and we're hoping you can. He wants to know if Jesus was existing in heaven before he was born here on earth. And if so, why is he not mentioned in the Bible at all? It's just mentioned as God being in heaven, not Jesus. And he's very confused about this and would love to get some answers. Yeah, that's pretty good uh, because there's a couple different facets to that one, Bill, that uh, first of all, uh, Jesus is the name he is given. Uh, remember, the angel tells Mary to name him Jesus, and then he is called Christ. That's a name, Messiah. It literally means anointed one. So it's not like it's his last name. That is his title. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah. But his name is not mentioned in the Old Testament, and uh, that is because uh, he exists, but he is existing in more of what you might call a a hidden or a mysterious kind of a way that uh, uh, those of us who understand our Christian doctrine know that one of the chief doctrines is the idea of the Trinity, that God exists. And the church has affirmed this for 1,700 years, Bill, that God exists. He is three persons united in one essence, or the old Church used to say, united in one substance. So there is one God, but he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so from New Testament point of view, we would say in the Old Testament times before Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, he is the eternal Son. That is his title. And now, is he named at all? That's where it gets a really kind of interesting, and scholars are a little bit split on this. They're, they don't all agree about it, but there is a character that appears just a handful of times in the Old Testament, and his title, he is called the Angel of the Lord, or quite literally, the Angel of Yahweh. And, and and I'm saying that with the definite article at the beginning of it, for all you grammarians out there, it's the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. And when he appears, it appears that he is what theologians will call a theophany, 
of God. A theophany of God is when God makes himself tangible to our senses. We can see him or we can hear him. We can touch him. Uh, otherwise, God is invisible and we we are not able to perceive him with our five senses. But when he does, that's a theophany. And it appears as though this angel of Yahweh is a theophany. I'll give you one example of this way back in Genesis 16, when there's all kinds of family trouble going on with Abraham and his wife, Sarai, and her servant, Hagar, because uh, Hagar is uh, going to uh, have a son by Abram because Sarai is having trouble getting pregnant. And she's driven out of the camp, Hagar is, and she's out uh, thinking she's going to die. But then listen to this in Genesis 16. It says, uh, Genesis 16, verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to shore. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to you, and so and so forth. It goes on. That does not sound like an angel talking, Bill. Mm-hmm. That sounds like God talking. Mm-hmm. And so this is recognized pretty wide, widely that this is, is a theophany. And you're going to see a number of these in Genesis, and then there's a couple of them. There's one in Judges chapter 2 uh, that this angel of Yahweh shows up. So it appears as though this is a theophany. This is God manifesting himself tangibly. Now, some scholars go further, and I tend to agree with them, that this angel of Yahweh specifically appears to be the eternal son because of a couple different things. Number one, after Bethlehem takes place and Jesus is born, you never see this term used again in the New Testament, the angel of Yahweh. And that would make sense if he now manifests himself as Jesus. And then secondly, we just uh, appeal to the word angel itself. In both the Old and New Testament language, the word angel means messenger, okay? And we read in, for example, John chapter 1, John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now use a little logic here. Now, the Word is God, all right? Think about it with angels. What are angels? They're messengers. What do angels deliver? What do they deliver? Messages. Messages. Right? Yeah. What are messages made up of? Words. And so if Jesus is the word of God, this would dovetail nicely mm-hmm. with this idea that he is the angel of Yahweh. And so I can't prove that one. It isn't as solid as the theophany is, but it is plausible that this is a manifestation a manifestation of the eternal son in the Old Testament. So that's the way I'd answer this fellow is to say uh, he is uh, – the, the eternal son is – 
eternal. He has always existed. He always will. And in the Old Testament, he is mostly in the shadows, but he may have presented himself as this angel of Yahweh. We do know with more certainty based in the New Testament that Jesus was the agent of creation. Uh, Paul tells us this in uh, Colossians chapter 1, that all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And then in John 1, right after that, in the beginning was the word. It says, all things were made through him, and nothing that has been made has been made apart from him. So the son was active in the creation of the the world in Genesis chapter 1. But you hear how it's, it's kind of hinting here and teasing us there a little bit. There's no declarative statement about this in the Old Testament, like I think that this man would probably like. Mm-hmm. Great answer, Mark. You got a lot of energy today. You're almost talking like a retired professor. I am. And you know what? got a good night's sleep. I got to put a plug in for this uh, down in Sioux Falls here. I'm looking out the most beautiful window at this sunset setting up here in a little while, looking to the west. And they're having their fundraiser uh, going on. There's all kinds of people in the next studio waving their arms and talking and everything (laughs) uh, (laughs) with uh, people on the phone. Uh It's really kind of fun. I bet it is. It is energizing. Thank you for being there. All right. My next question comes, uh, John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The question is, um, if you keep Christ's commands, the father will send the Holy Spirit. How do I keep all of Christ's commands if I don't already have the help of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I I don't think that that's a if-then kind of a conditional thing. Okay that this is all part of what Jesus is telling them is going to be happening now when he leaves them. Uh, That's the whole point here in John 14. Uh, They are very upset because Jesus is going to go to the cross soon, and he's saying, I'm leaving you. But then he's trying to reassure them by saying, things are going to be different, though. When I leave, I am sending the Spirit, the companion to you, and uh, he will perform these ministries to you. And the challenge for you is to keep my commands then. And and Jesus does not uh, spare any words there to say, if you are my follower, you're dead serious about keeping my commands. So uh, I don't think we can link them as if-then kind of conditional things. They both are true about this age that we live in. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know if we have time for this question. It's a quickie. Um, I was recently praying in a beautiful Catholic prayer chapel. And even though I'm not Catholic, I saw a book called A Missal. What is behind the concept of a missal? Oh, that's pretty easy. A missal is like a, uh, a, a liturgy or a form of worship. It contains uh, prayers, scripture in it, uh, lots of songs, and the Catholic Church uses this to guide them in the Mass weekly uh, to uh, help them uh, to be able to study scripture, to pray, uh, to sing together. It's a, a structured way of worshiping, and the, the word we give for that is it's a liturgy. And it's not just Catholics that have liturgies. Many uh, Anglicans and Episcopals do, and and Lutherans do as well. It's a more formalized way of worshiping the Lord together when you gather. Yeah, lovely. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we return, lots more Ask the Professor. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and you can text your questions over. I practically insist that you do. 877 933 2484 again 877 
933-2484. And if you've not downloaded the Faith Radio app, it's a great way to stay connected to Faith Radio. No matter where you are, you can listen live or on demand. You can go download that at your app store, at uh, whether you're on Apple or Google Play, and you can find that app, and I think you'll like it. All right, we'll be right back with Dr. Mark Muska. Again, Ask the Professor, 877-933-2484. I'm not the professor because some of these questions, I don't have an idea how to answer them. But thank goodness I have Dr. Mark Muska, and he may not know either, but we're going to both take a whack at it. Um, If you have a question, let me know, 877-933-2484. Let me start with this one, Mark. Where do people go when they die in Christ? Is there a holding place like there was before Christ died, like Abraham's bosom? And is the tree of life involved that was guarded by cherubims after Adam and Eve were ousted from the garden? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and it's it's a fair question. There, uh, sometimes we talk about this. Theologians will describe this as uh, the intermediate state of ex- existence that we as human beings are physical. We have bodies, but we also have a non-physical component to us, and we give that many names, a spirit, soul, mind, heart, uh, conscience, emotions, all that kind of thing. And so when we die, it's pretty clear what happens to us physically, that we, uh, uh, our body ceases to function and uh, we bury it. it it's gone. Uh, but uh, what happens to that immaterial part of us, the non-material, non-physical part. And uh, the scriptures give us some help with this. Uh, the uh, One of the passages that's appealed to that I like is that uh, Paul is writing to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, and he's talking about how he's imprisoned and uh, he gets uh, theological, though, in verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, in other words, to die, and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so Paul here anticipates dying physically because he is going to be with Christ. And he's portraying this as a whole lot better than life as it is now for him. So that's a real good hint for us that this is something that is uh, uh, what happens to the person in Christ that we will we will be with Christ mm. when we when we die. Uh, Paul, a little less clearly in Second Corinthians five, says something uh, uh, similar. 
Uh, verse 6, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord or present with the Lord. So he seems to be saying there to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Mm. And so uh, that is uh, in Christ we die, and this seems to happen in uh, uh, immediately for us, that we go to be in the presence of Christ. Is it this place of comfort that uh, Lazarus was in after he died in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Uh, it's called Abraham's bosom or the place of comfort. Uh, You can give it different names. Uh, Is this heaven? Uh, It it appears as that's the case, that this is the place where we remain with Christ until the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns. And uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about this, that when the trumpet sounds and the archangel shouts, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord, and so we will forever be with the Lord. Now, our resurrected bodies come, and that's what we carry through eternity. We exist in this non-physical form after we die physically, but then we will be raised, and it appears as though we have bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, yeah, we've got perfected bodies once we are raised from the dead. Mm, I'm all for that, Mark. Oh, amen to that. The older I get, the more I look forward to that, because all this stuff is breaking down on me. (laughs) Yeah. Our glorified bodies, we're going to go, oh, my knees don't hurt at all. It's going to be fabulous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be great. All right, Luke chapter 21, verse 32 says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what generation was Christ referring to? Yeah, uh, he's uh, <laughs> the smart alecky uh, uh, short answer to that is what generation is it? Well, it's this generation, he says. This generation will not pass away until all things take place, if you want to be a smarty pants. But if you put it in context, he's giving us all the signs around what's going to take place before he returns. This is called the Mount of Olives discourse because Jesus is speaking to the disciples very Uh, very shortly before he goes to the cross, and he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And if anybody knows the situation in Jerusalem there, the Mount of Olives is just on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, and it's higher than the Temple Mount, and you can look into the temple from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is speaking there on the Mount of Olives, and he's describing how things are going to get really bad on earth before his return. And then he talks about his return, and uh, he, he speaks about parables here, about the whole thing. And in this particular verse, when he says this, I take it to mean that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place means when you see these things starting, it's not going to go on for for generations and generations and generations, for centuries Mm -hmm. and millennia, that once the clock starts ticking with these last end-time events, it's going to be a relatively short period of time before the whole thing wraps up. Mm. 
Honestly, Bill, this is why so many Bible-believing Christians have been so excited in the later part of the 20th century and into the 21st century because we have seen a lot of these things that Jesus predicts and the apostles predict. We've seen them become realities in the world we live in today. And so there's a great anticipation there, uh, especially toward the end of the 20th century. There was a great anticipation that we, any day, uh, Christ could be appearing. And so uh, this is this is warranted in part because uh, Jesus tells us it's not going to take forever once you see these signs taking place. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. This is called Ask the Professor, not to be confused with Ask the Host, a segment we've never done. Oh, we can do that. Oh, well, can we me. ask you questions? No, no, we can't. Oh, okay. No, we can't. So send your questions over 877-933-2484. Mark, my next question is, uh, what is the mantle of God? When I searched the Bible, I understood it was the coat for Elisha when Elijah asked for a double portion. What does this mean to us now? Yeah, I'm getting over there right now. Okay. We're talking about Second uh, Kings 2, I believe. And so... Let's take a look at this. Remember, Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, he, uh, remember, he faced off with the prophets of Baal, and they had the sacrifice that was licked up by God's flames and everything Mm -hmm. like that. Well, Elisha was a student of Elijah's and came along uh, later. And so uh, uh, Elisha... Uh, requested from Elijah that when uh, Elijah uh, died or left, that he could have a, a, a triple portion of his uh, his uh, power from the Lord. And uh, Elijah said, well, if you see me depart, uh, you will, uh, I'm sorry, not a triple portion, a double portion in 2 Kings 2, uh, verse 9. Uh, if you see... As I depart, if you see me go, then uh, you will your your uh, request will be answered. And sure enough, he did. This is where we get this idea of the chariots of fire. That uh, this is really fun. Uh, let me read it here. Second uh, Kings two ten. This is Elijah saying to Elisha. Elijah said, "You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so that you get a double portion of my spirit." And then verse eleven: As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Wow. Can you, oh, that, that gets my imagination going to see. <laughs> Spectacular. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. And now this is where this goes. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. So he did. His his prayer, his request was answered, that he uh, ministered with great power after this now in that northern kingdom. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's really interesting, Mark. I appreciate that answer. Um, oh, I, I so hope we have reruns in heaven. I would just love to see that. Oh, yeah, no kidding. How it took place. It just must have been spectacular. Yeah. All right, Mark, here's another question. Other than when Paul mentions praying for King Agrippa, is there anywhere else in the New or Old Testament where we are called to pray for an unbeliever's salvation? I don't know. Is that is that Acts 26? Uh, for Paul's well, praying? It could be. Well, yeah. and I, it's, it's where he's testifying before Agrippa and uh, before uh, Festus, I believe it is. Uh, he's... He's under arrest of the Romans at Caesarea, and the Jews want to kill him. And he's uh, he's speaking to uh, the Agrippa comes to hear him. He's very interested in him, and at the end of his statement, uh, Paul challenges Agrippa, and uh, this is where you get the idea that he prays for him. Uh, I'm paging over there right now. Uh, uh, Felix uh, says. I'm sorry, Festus says, uh, Paul, your great learning has driven you out of your mind. And Paul says, no, 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 uh, I am not uh, out of my mind. Uh, I speak with uh, great soberness here. And then he challenges Agrippa right there. Uh, Let's see here. In Acts 26, um, Paul says to Agrippa in verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I ever utter words of sober truth for the king knows, King Agrippa, these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. This has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied, he's on the defensive now. He says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And then this is where you get this prayer for the non-Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short nor a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And so you really could say, no, Agrippa's not the only one. He's talking to everybody in the room, which includes Festus and uh, his wife and and so forth. So uh, I would say, no, it's not just here, but is this the only passage, I don't know if we could uh, uh, say that, that this is the only passage where someone prays for a non-Christian to put their faith in the gospel. I suspect it is not the only place, but I'm having trouble thinking of another place. Mm -hmm. So good. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and it's Ask the Professor, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Mark in just a sec. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faith. All right, that is a hard song to interrupt. Beautiful. 
That is Mark Muska's walk-up music. Great is thy faithfulness. Mark, thank you once again for being on the show. Sure. Questions are flying in, so we're going to try to get several here in the last uh, 10 minutes or so. In Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus said, The repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. Is this a parallel first to the Great Commission elsewhere? And is it and is is it fulfilled in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when they were baptizing three thousand in Jerusalem for repentance and remission of sins as Peter was preaching? Yeah, uh, that's that's a good question. This is very similar to the uh, Great Commission that a lot of people have memorized in Matthew twenty eight verses eighteen through twenty. And uh, in uh, Luke here, he's got something uh, very similar to it, that it's uh, this, this message is going to be uh, proclaimed, repentance and forgiveness uh, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And uh, was this fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? Yes and no. It was, it was fulfilled that it started in Jerusalem. Uh, sometimes people ask, why did Jesus say first in Jerusalem and then Matthew 28, it says, then in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth? And the reason he said Jerusalem was because that's where they were. <laughs> so mm. they're supposed to start where they are and move out from there to the nation of Israel and then to all nations uh, with the gospel. So in one sense, yeah, it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, thousands became followers of Christ that day when Peter preached, but that wasn't the end of it. That was the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. All right. When the Antichrist does appear on the world stage, won't those of us who believe recognize him as the Antichrist? Oh, that's a really tricky question. Okay. Because the reason I say that, Bill, is, is as you read this about things really getting bad on the earth, of one of the chief characteristics that the demonic powers have always used and that will be used during this time is deception. That uh, Satan and his followers are masters at making things look other than what they are. And so I'm not so sure. I, I'm just kind of taking a guess here. I'm not so sure we're going to recognize this person. Okay. And we may think we recognize some who are not that person uh, because of the kinds of things they do. Uh, this has been done through history. Uh, back in the 20th century, again, there were certain people being identified as the Antichrist. Uh, World War II provided an opportunity with Adolf Hitler and his terrible persecution of the Jewish people. Uh, but uh, I'm very cautious about thinking that we're going to be able to see this person for who he is, so I would I would be um, I would be skeptical about that. Uh, I don't think that's the main part of our mission, uh, our mission, and our message. If we are still on the earth during this time, our main mission is to get the word out before it's too late uh, that uh, Jesus saves and we can be forgiven mm-hmm. and enjoy Him forever mm-hmm. uh, in the presence of God. So. Uh, I'm not sure how important that will be to label the Antichrist. Uh, A a question that I thought of too, though, Bill, that's related to this is that one of the warnings in the book of Revelation is that uh, anyone who receives this mark of the beast, the Antichrist is called the beast, he's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, but uh, anyone who gets this mark is doomed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can read this for you here. Uh, It's in Revelation 14.9. 
Uh, John is writing here, and he says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of God. Wow. Uh, that is a hard passage. But I hear Christians sometimes say, well, is this uh, credit cards? Is this chips put in our hand or on our forehead or something like this? What if a Christian gets one of these and doesn't realize it? Uh, are we doomed? It sounds like anyone who receives this mark of the beast is doomed. Mm-hmm. And the best way I can answer this is to say, I don't know for sure, but I have confidence in God that the conviction of God and of his spirit will will forbid us, will restrict us from getting any kind of mark of the beast, Mm -hmm. Uh, that there will be a compulsion or something within our consciences that you just don't do this. I know it sounds kind of horsey, Bill, but about 10 years ago, one of the drug grocery stores in the Twin Cities had this deal where you didn't need your credit card if you just had your thumbprint and you put it on the screen Mm -hmm. and then it would do this. I didn't get that. I didn't want to mess with that. I've read Revelation 14, and so I just stayed away from it. And so I don't want to start any kind of hysteria or anything like that, but I think we we have to depend on the Lord. He's going to protect us from this kind of deception if if and when we experience it. Mm-hmm. Are you still bartering with silks and spices? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love this question. Um, sure. At the top of the hour, you'd mentioned about being disciplined by the Lord. Uh, what does that look like? I'm not sure I always see it in my life. Am I dull or am I missing something? Oh, man. You know, <laughs> uh, this show is just kind of ending on a downer note here because, <laughs> uh, you know, we're talking about the mark of the beast and the eternal torment and all yeah, that. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, yeah, well, here with discipline, too, I, I think I've lived long enough to realize that the discipline of God is almost never happy. It's uh, it's not where he gives you a million bucks or he makes you the Super Bowl champs. That mm-hmm. is not God's discipline. He deals with us harshly at times to get our attention and to grow us. And so it's almost never enjoyable. So I would say to this person, the discipline of God, if you are experiencing trials and uh, difficulties, I would look for this to say, what is it that God is teaching me here through these uh, difficult times? Uh, we were in Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and Paul, uh, the writer here really puts it to us uh, to say that you've, you've uh, in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 4, he says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood for your striving against sin. And then verse 7, he says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons of God. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And then I love these last two verses, verses 10 and 11. For they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seeing best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that mm. we may share his holiness. I don't know about you, that sounds appealing, that even does. if I have to suffer under his discipline. Oh, it sure does to me too. And then verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Do I get any amens for that? Amen. Yeah. Okay. Big amen. Yeah. Anybody who ever says to their parents after they've disciplined, oh, you know, that didn't hurt. Well, they'll make it hurt. You know? <laughs> it's going to make, it's going to be yeah. that bad. But look what he says. It's all not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That really sounds good as well. So do you want to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness and to share in God's holiness? You better be ready. So I would say just about anything that is happening in your life that's difficult, that's testing you, being persecuted by others, suffering physically or emotionally, all of this, God has a purpose for it, and he will use it to share his holiness and mm-hmm. to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. we got to depend on that. Amen. It's just not uh, without purpose that we can, we, can, uh, we can benefit from this. Yeah. Mark, about a minute left. Why sure. does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Oh, that's a great Old Testament reference there. The Son of Man, uh, uh, we don't have enough time to look at these passages, but this is something that uh, Daniel talks about and Ezekiel about this Son of Man uh, that is going to do these great things at the end of the age. And I like it too because he's also affirming his true humanity. A lot of people think he you know, just faked it as Mm -hmm. a human being when he walked the earth. No, 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 no. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God, but he's also the son of man. So good. All right. Another question. Was Peter the first pope as some claim? Well, this is according to Catholic uh, teaching and Catholic theology. Yes. Yep. Because that is the term that they use for this leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we would say Peter is one of the 12 apostles. And he was a primary apostle. Uh, Jesus said that he would, uh, uh, the, the gates of hell would not uh, stand against him. Uh, he was this rock upon which the church would be built. And so uh, he has a primary position among the apostles, but uh, most non Catholics are hesitant to, to call him the first pope. Mm-hmm. Mark, I love the hour. I miss seeing you in person, but I, I love having you on the show all the way from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Well, this is better than nothing, and I appreciate just hearing your voice. And Rosie, too, I wish she'd talk more because I love to hear her, too. And I wish you all God's blessings and and, uh, great uh, richness in Christ uh, as you continue to serve him. Hey, I'm almost choking up here. I know, me too. (laughs) It just makes us miss you even more. Yeah. So thankful for your time, though, Mark. learned a lot today. Yeah, there she is. All right. Have a great night, Mark. Okay. Thanks, you guys. You bet. Dr. Mark Muska has been our guest. If you missed any of this, there's some great questions and great answers that came in. You can always head to the podcast at myfaithradio.com and check it out from the beginning. Thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to the next time we're together, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.